Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, Bethlehem's Wonder Twins. Early results seem to confirm the preseason predictions that the league would come down to a contest between two teams, Bethlehem Steel and Fall River. With about a quarter of the season in the books, the two giants remain tied in the standings with 18 points each. A little further back sat New York FC at 14, followed by defending champions JMP Coates with 13. In fourth place was Nathan Agar's Brooklyn Wanderers with 10, and the New York National Giants in fifth at 8. Philadelphia came next with three points, just ahead of cellar dwellers Newark, who had so far managed to secure just two points. first quarter of the season did not lack for drama and included the ASL's first ever New York City Derby. In fact, the clubs played twice in the first quarter of the season, once on October 28th and the other on November 18th. New York City Field Club swept to victory in both matchups, winning the first 2-0 and the second by the even bigger margin of 4-1. The first game was played at the Polo Grounds in Brooklyn on a slippery pitch before a crowd of 5,000 people. New York FC took the lead in the 37th minute thanks to a goal from Archie Stark. Tommy Duggan added an insurance tally in the 59th minute to seal the victory and the two points for the visitors. Another notable player in the game was St. Louis-born legend Harry Radican. The now 29-year-old Radican had been part of the legendary Bethlehem Steel sides of the late teens, including the National Challenge Cup-winning squad of 1918. In fact, Radican even scored a goal in the final. Since that time, however, his playing career had been limited by injury and illness, although he did help Robbins Drydock capture the cup in 1921. By 1922, he had largely given up playing to take a position as head soccer coach at the West Point Military Academy. His appearance for the Giants in 1923 was the only time he lined up for the club. The New York Times reported that he took some time to get into the game and only flashed his previous quality toward the end of the match. The second Gotham Derby went even worse for the Giants than the previous match. Once again, they failed to find the net versus their crosstown rivals, their only tally being an own goal off a failed clearance from Billy Hurd. Once again, the hero of the day was giant killer Tommy Duggan, who scored a natural hat trick in the first half, finding the net in the 15th, 35th, and 40th minutes. Attendance was strong, with another 5,000 people turning up to the New York Oval. Now for some headlines from off the pitch. Failed coup in Germany as 2,000 members of the National Socialist German Workers, or Nazi Party, clashed with police in Munich. The violence left 16 Nazis and four policemen dead. Leaders of the party, including top man Adolf Hitler, have been arrested and will face trial for treason. President Calvin Coolidge announced that he was refusing all offers of a Thanksgiving turkey and instead will buy his own. In ending a custom that sometimes resulted in numerous free birds arriving at the White House, Mr. Coolidge declared that the practice should no longer be encouraged. Cecil B. DeMille's epic film The Ten Commandments premiered at Grauman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, California. Theodore Roberts stars as Moses and Estelle Taylor plays Miriam. The lavish sets include 110-foot tall gates, four 35-foot tall pharaoh statues, and 21 sphinxes. In sports, 
Queen's University hammered Regina Rugby Club 54-0 to capture the Canadian Rugby Union's Grey Cup. Played before almost 9,000 at Varsity Stadium in Toronto, it was the third straight title for Queen's and the most lopsided result in the competition's history. After a lackluster start to the season, a dramatic improvement in form propelled Bethlehem Steel to the top of the table. The club won seven straight games, outscoring opponents by 15 goals during the streak. The wins also included four clean sheets. Key to the Steelmen's success was the dynamic duo of brothers Alex and Walter Jackson. In the first episode of the season, I mentioned their arrival and suggested they could be among the most talented players to appear in the ASL. That was most certainly the case, especially 19-year-old Alex, who would go on to become one of the world's most talented players during the 1920s. Alexander Jackson was born in Renton, Scotland in 1905. He came from a large family of nine children. Alex, the youngest, had four brothers and four sisters. Two of his brothers had fought in World War I, Tom, who was wounded, and the oldest son, James, who was killed on September 27, 1917. Alex's first club was local outfit Renton, Victoria, but he soon moved to Dumberton in exchange for a new ball. In 1923, the teenager, along with his brother Walter, signed with Bethlehem Steel while visiting family in the U.S. Walter, nicknamed Waddy, had a bit more experience, appearing in 74 games and scoring 29 goals for Kilmarnock before his move to the Christmas City. One reason for the decision was that the American side reportedly paid Jackson wages of $25 a week, more than triple of what he made as a professional in Scotland. Despite his youth and inexperience, Alex soon showed his obvious talent, scoring five goals in the club's first seven games. Tall and graceful, Jackson had a long, thin face with a sharp nose and prominent ears. He was known for his pace and technical ability. In his natural position as an outside right, he tended to cut inside in order to run onto the ball or get on the end of a cross, a style of play that is commonplace now but was a revelation in the 1920s. After one season with Bethlehem Steel, the Jackson brothers returned to Scotland, both joining Aberdeen. The signings were something of a coup for the Dons, and the Steel men accused the Scottish club of illegally poaching them. The American side was so incensed at losing two of their best players, they convinced the U.S. Football Association to write a letter of protest to the Scottish FA, but to no avail. Alex played just one season with Aberdeen, scoring eight goals in 34 appearances. In 1925, he made his debut in the Scottish national team and also moved to English side Huddersfield Town for the sum of £5,000. The club won the league in his first season, and in his career for the Terriers, he would go on to score 70 goals in 179 league games. One of his crowning achievements as a footballer came on March 31, 1928, when Scotland beat England 5-1 at Wembley Stadium in London. Jackson was one of the best players on the pitch, scoring a hat-trick for the team that would forever be known as the Wembley Wizards. In addition to his success on the field, Jackson had a nose for business off the pitch. In 1930, he engineered a move to Chelsea for £9,500, in part because the capital offered better financial opportunities. 
Like many sportsmen, he opened a pub, was part owner of a hotel, and even penned a syndicated newspaper column. Foreshadowing later footballers such as George Best, he increasingly faced scrutiny as rumors and gossip swirled around him. Although things went well at first, Jackson's career at Chelsea quickly soured. Due in part to injuries, his playing time steadily decreased, and after a relatively tame off-field incident regarding drink, he was transfer-listed. Even as his club career fizzled, the Scottish FA made a series of decisions that effectively froze him out of the national side, despite the fact that the team had lost just one game when Jackson featured in the lineup. Ultimately, he finished his international career with just 17 caps, scoring eight goals. When his contract with the Blues ran out in 1932, the club retained his registration, meaning Jackson was unable to play for another league side. After spending some time in non-league football and in France, Jackson, known as the Gay Cavalier, retired from football at age 28. Eventually, he joined the Army, saw combat in Africa during World War II, and rose to the rank of Major. He died in a traffic accident in Egypt shortly after the war in 1946. Today's sponsor is the Stutz Motor Car Company. The world is your show window, spreading beyond the crystal clear glass expanse of the Stutz 6 sedan. King Winter reads, keep out as you glide your cozy way, untouched by the legion of discomforts that once beset motoring at the finest time of the year. Available in three styles, the touring car and roadster starting at $1,995 and the five-passenger model for $2,550. Although in some ways Alex Jackson's career was one of unrealized potential, in 1923 he was, despite his young age, one of the most talented and exciting players in the ASL. He played a key part in getting Bethlehem Steel to the top of the table level with rival title contenders Fall River. On December 15th, the two squads met in Bethlehem for the first time this season. The Bethlehem Globe called the two clubs the cream of the league and suggested that the match could be a title decider, despite the fact the season was not even half over. A crowd of 1,000 welcomed back old favorites such as Findlay Kerr, Dougie Campbell, and Howard Britton, who returned as visiting players. The game did not disappoint with the Globe declaring it 90 minutes of the most spectacular and sensational soccer play stage on the local field this season. The home side was more aggressive and had better chances. Inside left, Tommy Maxwell was especially effective, constantly beating his man and putting in crosses, only to have them cleared or the shots saved. Bethlehem Steel even earned a penalty, but John Rattray lashed the ball over the net. After again nearly scoring with the ball off the post, the Steel men eventually broke through off a nice piece of combination play started by the ever-dangerous Maxwell. Malcolm Goldie took Maxwell's cross and soon found Walter Jackson, who unselfishly passed up the shot to set up Neil Turner for the game's only goal. At the other end of the pitch, the home side center half Bob McGregor effectively marked Fall River striker Britton out of the game and despite some chances, the visitors could not find a breakthrough. In addition to the stout defense led by McGregor, the Steelmen addressed their recent goalkeeping woes by enlisting St. Louis import Dutch Olerman, who had a solid game between the sticks. Will the win over Fall River propel Bethlehem Steel to the title? 
Or will there be more twists and turns to come as the rest of the season plays itself out? Find out on the next Soccer History USA podcast. Sources for today's program include Colin Joe's The American Soccer League, www.bethlehemsteelsoccer.org, The Guardian newspaper, and The New York Times. Music from archive.org. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For more information, visit www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you.